We continue now with Paul's letter to the Colossians. And this is the third in our series. We've called it Paul's letter to Laodicea, because as you remember, in the end of the book of Colossians, it is said that this book should be read to the church in Laodicea. And our sermon title for today is The Incomparable Christ. And the passage we're gonna look at, one, chapter one, verses 15, through 20 is just, it's one of the most beautiful uh, songs of Christ that I think you can find in the Bible. And I'm excited to go there with you today. Paul also says in Colossians, put on love above all things, put on charity or love and be ye thankful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for your holy word. Send your spirit to be our teacher. And may we have open ears and hearts and minds to hear and to listen and to absorb and to appreciate what your word says today. We thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It is, again, the letter to Colossae that we're looking at, the incomparable Christ. And just by way of review, we saw last time chapter 1, verse 5, that faith and love, and we were reminded that faith and love is exactly what Laodicea needs, the gold tried in the fire, and that these spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And we looked at this word hope, and we saw elpizo in the Greek. It doesn't mean, oh, I hope it doesn't snow too much today, or I hope the potluck or my lunch doesn't burn. It isn't that, right? It's, it's, it's an assurance. That's what this word hope means uh, so many times in the New Testament. So the blessed hope is the blessed assurance. And so this hope that is stored up within us from that flows faith and love. We also saw in verse 11, this formula for successful living Christian living in this life. Endurance and long-suffering with what? With joyfulness, right? It's not enough just to grin and bear it. (laughs) God would have us have hearts that endure and do it joyfully. And that's what he wants to give us. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The, The patience of the saints or the endurance of the saints. The book of Revelation tells us. Then we saw in verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people or of the saints in the kingdom of light. And we saw there that God has qualified us by the sacrifice of Christ to share in this inheritance And we saw that the inheritance, when we give an inheritance, if we have several people we're giving it to, we have to split it up. This person gets this much, not with God. When God gives an inheritance, he gives it all to everyone. Come on and say amen if that's good news. That's the God we serve. Well, in the larger picture of the book of Colossians, they were dealing with several erroneous teachings. And some of those still confront the church today. The warnings of the word of God regarding the perils surrounding the Christian church belong to us today. As in the days of the apostles, men tried by tradition and philosophy 
to destroy faith in the scriptures. So today, by pleasing sentiments, higher criticism, evolution, spiritualism, theosophy, and pantheism, the enemy of righteousness is seeking to lead souls into forbidden paths. So obviously we want to stay away from those things that the Colossian church dealt with and still are in our world today. To many people, the Bible is a lamp without oil because they have <clears throat> turned their minds into channels of speculative belief that bring misunderstanding and confusion. And sometimes it seems like, oh, you know, everything is preference, right? We live in this new age where there's no real truth. You know, every, well, you know, you, you say it this way, I say it that way. But in our Bible, we have principles that are truth, amen? There is an objective source of truth today, and it's in your holy word. Going on, the work of higher criticism, and here's sort of a little definition of it, in dissecting. Now, is there anything wrong with dissecting scripture? No, not in and of itself. Dissecting, conjecturing, that's where you start getting in trouble, right? When you go to the word, you are to, to, to see what the word has for you that comes out of the word, not trying to put what you have into the word. And that might seem like a nuance, but it's very, very important. It's more than a nuance. So this work of higher criticism is dissecting, conjecturing, and reconstructing. So that's like saying, well, you know, let's just take all these, you know, things that the Bible has said mean this for years, and, you know, we know what these concepts mean. Let's just say they mean something else. You can't do that with the Word of God. <laughs> it means what it says, and it is its best uh, uh, interpreter. The word is itself. So that is dangerous. And that's what the statement goes on to say, is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. This, my friends, is not just words. Amen? This is God's holy word. And oh, how we need it today. And oh, how we will continue to need it more and more as the day approaches going on. I used to think of higher criticism maybe just in the educational circles at colleges or something, but it's more than that as I study this statement from the book Education. The work of higher criticism is robbing God's word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. And oh, if we, if we ever needed that, we need it today. Amen? So we want to stay away from this higher criticism of dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing. Now, spiritualism has different shades of meaning also. By spiritualism, multitudes are taught to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. Obviously, that is completely false, right? Spiritualism, going on, asserts that men are unfallen demigods. That each mind will judge itself. Do we judge ourselves, or is there a judge in the Holy Scriptures? 
that each mind will judge itself, that true knowledge places men above all law, and that all sins committed are innocent, for whatever is, is right. And God doth not condemn. Very interesting uh, topic, and you might hear those thoughts expressed, and I would say be careful of the thoughts and the context in which they arise. We serve a loving God, amen? And that certainly does not condemn, but there is a judgment that awaits uh, all the end of time. What Paul does mainly is he goes to the beautiful truth of Christ, and that's what he uplifts in this passage that we're going to look at today. Christ in his birth, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Christ, the creator and redeemer of all. And then he says in chapter 2 that you are complete in him. Amen? If you have Christ, if you have his word, you don't need all these other things, tangents that are off to the side. That is what Paul will share with us, especially as we get into chapter 2 going forward. But this time we're in Colossians 1. Now there is another... Um, error that is going around in the Christian church today, and that is an attack on the Godhead or the Trinity. Or in this case, in the Colossians case, it was on the divinity of Christ, that Christ was not divine. He was just an emanation. There's, well, there's all kinds of emanations, the Gnostics said, and you know, Christ was certainly a good one, but he wasn't God. And we hear that today. In fact, I've even heard, and some of this you're going to be scratching your head on, I've even heard people say that it's wrong to worship Jesus. Um, so that's how far it's gone in some circles. And uh, it's important for us to know the truth. And I want to start with a story before we get to this scripture. So just listen along. You'll recognize it. It's a Bible story. It's from John chapter 11. <clears throat> The place was called Bethany. There's a little home there. And a family whom Christ loved to fellowship with, maybe above all others. Do you know what home that was? You do, of course. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This family had a deep love for Jesus. It was a place where he could find rest from his toil and work. It was there that Christ unfolded many of his beautiful gospel lessons as they fellowshiped together. But one day... Sorrow entered that peaceful home. Lazarus was stricken with a sudden illness, and his sister sent to the Savior, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. They believed that Jesus would sympathize with them in their distress, and he absolutely did. Anxiously, they waited for a word from him, but when Lazarus died, they were bitterly disappointed. However, they felt the sustaining grace of Christ. And this kept them from reflecting any blame on the Savior. When Christ heard the message, the disciples thought he received it coldly. Why aren't we going immediately? We know you really are close to this family. The delay was a mystery to them. After waiting for two days, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go again to Judea. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Well, then the disciples said, well, hey, if he's sleeping, he's doing good. 
Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death. He had to make it quite clear to them. But they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then he goes on to say, I am glad. Oh, what could that mean? I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. But you got to listen to the end of the sentence. I was glad that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. He knew exactly where this story was going to end. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. That's John eleven fifteen. Going on with this true Bible story and delaying to come to Lazarus, Christ had a purpose of mercy towards those who had not received him. He tarried that by raising Lazarus from the dead, he might give to his stubborn, unbelieving people another evidence that he was indeed the resurrection and the life. This is what the Colossian church was having a problem with. The false teachers were saying, no, no, he's not. But Jesus was going to prove it right here with this story of the raising of Lazarus. The crowning miracle, the raising of Lazarus was to set the seal of his work on his claim to divinity. Indeed, Christ is and was divine, still seeking to give a true direction to her faith after this conversation back and forth with Martha. He declared, I am the resurrection and the life. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, and underived. He that has the Son has life. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. Oh, how important it is. He that believes in me, said Jesus, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha responded, yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Oh, she didn't comprehend all of it. But she confessed her faith in his divinity and her confidence that he was able to perform what it pleased him to do. Do you have that confidence in our Christ and our Savior today? Take away the stone, obviously. Christ calmly stands before the tomb. A sacred solemnity rests on all present. Christ steps closer to the sepulcher. Lifting his eyes to heaven, he says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. When he had spoken thus, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. His voice clear and penetrating pierces the ear of the dead. It was good he just said Lazarus, right? Or all the tombs would have opened. Every eye is fastened on the entrance to the cave. Every ear is bent to catch the slightest sound because I haven't seen him yet. With intense, painful interest, all wait. For the tests of Christ's divinity. I hope you're getting that point as we look at this story. The evidence that is to substantiate his claim to be the Son of God or to extinguish that hope forever. And of course, some of the next words heard were loose him, let him go. And Christ's divinity was substantiated beyond all doubt. 
Oh, that the Colossians would know and understand that truth. Unfortunately, they did not. We're looking at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And as I did last week, I'm going to do again this week. And if I can have you stand now, you've been sitting for a while and know how it goes. It's possible to doze off out there. So if you can stand for the reading of God's word, I have the King James rendering this morning. And oh, what a song of praise we have in God's word today. And this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Not only did he create, but he sustains all things. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. May God add his blessing to his holy word. You may be seated. All right, in just the few moments we have, let's take a look at this tremendous text. Now, there may be some well-dressed people that will end up on your doorstep. Uh, knocking. Actually, they haven't been knocked. They've been sending letters now because of COVID. Uh, but that would be the Jehovah Witness uh, brothers and sisters. And they very well may use this text to try to prove a point that it actually proves the very opposite of when you look at the whole context. How could you not see Christ exalted in that, right? And yet they'll use that to say, oh, no, no, he was born. He was an image. He wasn't God. Uh, himself. Well, we want to take a look at that this morning and again in just the little time we have. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God. Image, William Barclay comments this way, the Gnostics had said that Jesus was merely one of many intermediaries and that however great he might be, he was only a partial revelation of God. Paul says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, teaches also that he's the firstborn of all creation, not in the sense that he's a part of creation, but in the sense that he is over all creation. And we'll look at firstborn uh, here in a minute. But I want to take you to a couple scriptures that will help us understand this. One is right here in Colossians 2, verse 9. Now we're speaking of the divinity of Christ primarily. He is the image, that is, he's, he's the exact replica. That's what this word image means. It's not like something lesser than. And firstborn is not speaking of time, 
but of position, right? The firstborn had the inheritance. Christ was the firstborn in the sense that he was above all others, preeminent. That's really clear in this entire passage if you read it. But let's look at just a few scriptures on the divinity of Christ. It's important. It is something that's being challenged in Christianity today. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 9, right there in Colossians, that is where we'll start since we're right there. Um, and we'll just give you one other, Matthew 1, and 23, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And then here in Colossians 2, 9, for in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Really, it shouldn't need to read much more. <laughs> Christ clearly is God from beginning to end, completely God. But let's look at a few others. Let's look at, let's, let's go to John. And that was read in our scripture reading, and thank you for that. John chapter one, because that's another one that in the Jehovah Witness Bible actually reads a little differently. John chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, speaking of Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word what? What does it say next? Was God. The same was in the beginning with God, Father and Son together. All things were made by him. Who's that speaking of? Jesus, right? He was the, the one who actually created the vehicle through which all creation took place. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So clearly Christ created all things, meaning he was before all things because he had to be before them if he created them. One other text that we'll look at, and that is Hebrews chapter one. And you folk are going through Hebrews. If you're uh, going through our Sabbath school lesson, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is presented as the better everything, right? He's the better sacrifice. He's the better priest. He's the better everything. In chapter one, we have Jesus uplifted as God. In chapter two, it's his coming down and partaking of man, what he took as man. But this is what he was as God. Hebrews chapter one, verse one, says this, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus made it all. Verse three, being the brightness of his glory and the express image, there's that word image again, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power or his powerful word when he had himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for under which of the angels at any time 
was it said, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be unto him a father, and he will be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the firstborn into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God do what? This is the end of verse six. Worship. Now, if God says the angels should worship, do you think it's okay for us to worship Jesus? Absolutely, <laughs> right? This is not a tough quiz so far, right? God says worship. The angels are to worship. Christ accepted worship. I've got probably, oh, eight different places where Christ accepted worship. And if he was what he says he was, and he was, and if he accepted worship, worship is okay, right? Worship is something we should do to Jesus, indeed. I'll just give you one, Matthew 14, 33. Then those, speaking of the disciples, who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Again and again, Christ accepted worship. The Father says here that the angels are to worship Jesus, and indeed we are too. And indeed he is so exalted. Verse 7, and the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But, so he's contrasting the angels with Jesus, right? Jesus is above the angels, right? above all. That's what the Colossians did not understand. But look at verse 8. But unto the Son, he says, thy throne. And what does it say next? O God. So the Father, God, is calling the Son God. Now, if the Father says he's God, that's good enough for me. How about y'all? I mean, that's, that pretty much would settle it, should settle it. But under the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Jesus is to be worshiped, amen? He is the creator. He is the redeemer of all. He is the one who sustains. He holds all things together. I don't know what would happen to us if Jesus wasn't doing it. I mean, would we vaporize? We wouldn't hold together, I know that. We would not hold together. Jesus is holding all things together. I wanna take you to one more scripture before we close here because this uh, issue of son of God has a problem because we think of son in terms of, well, there's a father and a son, so one is, we think in terms of time, right? That one is, you know, born after. The one father has the son that's not how the Bible viewed it, and that's not how the people in Jesus' day viewed it. You know what they accused Jesus of? Well, obviously many things, but they accused him of blasphemy. Do you know why they accused him of that? Because he said he was the son of God. Now, why would they accuse him of blasphemy for saying he was the son of God unless they understood that he was saying he was God? That's exactly what they understood. Go to John chapter 10, and then we'll get back to our passage here before we close. <clears throat> but saying that you were the son of God in Jesus' day was as if you were saying you were God. That is what he was saying. And they understood it very well. That's why they accused him of blasphemy. Because blasphemy is putting yourself in the place of God. John chapter 10 
This is a great, beautiful passage. Jesus' sheep hear his voice. Verse 27, verse 30. I and my Father are one. The Jews take up stones to stone him again. Not the first time. Jesus said, many good works I've done. Why are you trying to stone me now? For a good work, we're not trying to stone you. Verse 33, but for blasphemy, because thou being a man, make thyself God. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law? I said that ye are gods. If you call them gods in whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, saith ye of him whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemous? Because I said, I am the what? The son of God, right? They understood son of God meant he was saying he was God. So they accused him of blasphemy. And we too need to understand the son of God is code for part and parcel of God. Jesus is God. He created, he redeemed, he sustains, he holds all things together. We close back in Colossians And oh, I'm glad this is a series because there's so much more here to say. But we can't get it all today. That one in whom we have redemption. Verse 16, the one by whom all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers were created by him and for him. So not only was everything created by him, but it's, for him, right? We're to live our lives for him because he is our creator, right? He created us for him, to glorify him, to be a living demonstration of him as Christ lives in us. Colossians 1:27. He is before all things, verse 17, and by him all things consist. You are being held together right now by Christ. Amen? He's holding you together. And just think if it had been different. Consider what would happen if things changed. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer to the earth, we'd burn. If it were further away, we'd freeze. Our globe is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees, which enables us to have four seasons. If it, were t- if it weren't tilted, vapors from the ocean would move north and south, eventually piling up monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not remain a specific distance from the earth, the ocean tides would completely inundate the land twice a day. The ocean floor merely slipped a few feet deeper. The carbon dioxide and oxygen balance in the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset. No vegetation or animal life could exist. Christ holds all things in his hands, amen? From the minutest atom to the largest star, Christ is holding it. He's not, sometimes we seem to think that, you know, there's this cause and effect in these these things, and, and Christ is not even a part of that. He's a part of it. He's holding all of it together. These things don't happen by accident. Jesus Christ sustains the universe. He is the principle of cohesion. Gravity is merely how he works. You cannot separate his principles from him. 
He is not like the deistic or the deist's watchman creator who made the world, set it in motion, and hasn't bothered with it since. That's not the God we serve. He's actively holding it together. The reason the universe is a cosmos and not a chaos, an ordered and reliable system instead of an erratic and unpredictable muddle is the upholding power of Jesus Christ. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Scientists who think they're discovering great truths are doing nothing more than discovering the sustaining laws that Christ used to control the world. No scientist, no mathematician, astronomer, or nuclear physicist could do anything without the upholding power of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ monitors and sustains the movements and developments of the universe. For the entire universe hangs on the arm of Jesus. His unsearchable wisdom and boundless power are manifest in the governing of the universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. What a savior we serve today, amen? Who not just created, not just redeemed, he has redeemed, he has bought you back, but he sustains all things. And by him, all things hold together. Oh, what a savior that we continue to go to in this book of Colossians for the rest of oh, another month here as we continue to go deep in God's word. Let's pray as we close today. Gracious Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, our wonderful savior, who is God. Thank you for being our savior and that by your blood we have been redeemed. What a wonderful God you are, Father, to be in Christ, reconciling the world to yourself. And oh, in the light of such sacrifice made on our behalf and the fact that we're created and we've been redeemed and you're the one who holds us together, how can we do anything else but to give ourselves entirely back to you in worship and allow you to live your life in us? Oh, Jesus, King of Kings. Indeed, you are the fairest of all. You are the chiefest among 10,000, the one altogether lovely, the desire of ages. Oh, be that to our hearts today. And Lord, if any here within my hearing are not serving you or maybe didn't see you, Jesus, as God and realize that, of course, we are to worship you. The book of Revelation says it again and again. And Lord, may we worship you today both in spirit and truth, making you both our Savior and our Lord. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our lives. And through this series, as you get more precise on how, how that relates to our families and our relationships, oh Lord, we want to know more. Teach us from your word. Make us humble servants and stewards and humble listeners. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.